0: Are you ready to start the mission? Welcome everyone to episode 24 of the Real Spies Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, Espionage author P.A. Duncan. We're closing in on Thanksgiving. That's next week, a week from today, as you're hearing this. And I won't be doing a podcast next week because of the holiday. And who wants to listen to me blather on when you can be blathering on with your relatives on Zoom or watching a football game? So, No podcast next week, and we'll resume the week after. I hope everyone has a happy Thanksgiving. Eats too much food, because that's kind of the whole point. All right, let's talk about what I'm going to read today. I'm getting toward the end of the book, And Justice for All. I divided it into two parts because by the time I reached the end of the overall thread or the arc, the story arc for the three books, there were a lot of loose ends that had to be cleaned up. So I wrote a part two and that kind of closed up all the plot holes and let you know what happened to certain people who haven't shown up in a while. And so now I'm going to read from close to the end of part one. And last week, I left off where my character, My Fisher, had let herself be captured by one of the assassins, actually the only remaining assassin left to Cassandra Brown. And they took Mai, unconscious, back to the nunnery that showed up in book two, where Mai went to look for, that was the last known place they knew the Russian assassins were, and Mai went there to check it out, and she was stalked through the forest, had her car burned, and was kind of, stalked again inside a Serbian Orthodox church. This was before she knew Cassandra Brown was involved. Although later when she found out Cassandra was involved, she realized my realizes she should have figured it out by what happened at that church because it kind of was typical of of Cassandra. So She's gone back, uh, she's been taken back there because she was captured. And remember, she has a subcutaneous implant, Mai does, that lets Alexei know where she is. Cassandra knows that because someone betrayed that to the CIA, and because she's working for this CIA officer in Europe, she knows he told her about Mai's transponder, and he gave her the frequency. Mai and Alexei don't know that, but Cassandra has equipment that she has in her apartment that can counter that signal. That can, It produces another signal on a frequency that's kind of opposite the one that's in Mai's transponder, and they cancel each other out. The science behind it is much more complicated, and believe me, I didn't get into it. But Mai has come through that. She and Cassandra have a bit of a, a wrestling match on the floor of the church, and then they have a kind of running gun battle through the church up into the bell tower where Mai gets shot a flesh wound. She actually gets shot in the ass, but she tells everyone not to, not to spread that around. But Cassandra falls to her death from the bell tower. And just as Alexei and Rinovich arrive, Alexei goes to Cassandra and tries to get her to tell him who she's working for. But she resists to the very end, and she dies. Then Rinovich comes and gets Alexei and says, you need to come inside the church. There he finds a wounded Mai and his nephew, Sasha, who at the last minute realizes that Mai has been telling him the truth about Cassandra, gives Mai a gun, but then when Mai goes to shoot Cassandra, Sasha puts himself in front of Cassandra and Mai shoots him instead and he's dead. So Renovic has a lot of questions. Alexei's not giving any answers. His concern is getting Mai to a hospital so that, you know, her wound can be, even though it's relatively minor, her wound can be treated. So we're going to start reading where Renovic has just about had enough and he wants answers to his questions. All right, here we go with Chapter 21 from And Justice for All, Magnanimous Gestures. Rinovich had left his office with a full head of steam after several calls to Alexei Bukharin's mobile went unanswered, much like the questions Rinovich needed to ask and the forensics report, such as it was, only posed more questions. Rinovich summoned his car and driver and set off for the private hospital Bukharin had requested, Atlas. The private hospital had a private floor, and my fisher was in a private room on that private floor. Still, Rinovich's uniform got him the access he wanted. What he saw in the doorway made him lose his police bluster. My Fisher lay curled up on her right side, her sleep peaceful. She looked impossibly young. Alexei Bukharin sat in a chair beside the bed and watched her sleep, a hand resting on her hair. No, Rinovich told himself, any other secretariat commander would have had them in an interrogation room long ago. Today, he was coming away with answers, no matter how much he liked the two of them. They were of a mind about things in this country, and he understood after a lifetime of replies couched in falsehood, they knew no other way to deal with anyone, including, perhaps, each other. A hell of a way to live, but their connection was strong and obvious, though perhaps more so on Bukharin's side. How would he take the news from the forensics report? Did Bukharin love his wife or his kin more? Rinovich suspected he knew the answer. Too many disconnected facts. Too few answers. Answers Rinovich wanted and needed, despite the phone call he'd received from Petrovich this morning. Petrovich had seen the preliminary reports and had called to stress to Renovasich the importance of diplomatic relations with Russia. Petrovich had either ignored the mention of a former CIA agent's involvement in the murders or intended to use the knowledge for his own purposes. But Renovasich was a good policeman. He wanted his answers, even if they went into a report only he would see. Rinovich cleared his throat and tapped on the open door. Bukharin's scowl turned to a smile when he recognized Rinovich. Hand pressed to his side, Bukharin rose and came to the policeman, surprising him with a Russian greeting of a hug and kisses on cheeks. "'How is Maya doing?' Rinovich asked, trying to be formal, getting some much-needed rest. Her wound was more embarrassing than serious. The doctor indicated he may release her later today. In a day or so when she's up and around, come to the house and we'll debrief you. There are some things I would like to discuss now, Rinovich said. Bukharin's eyes narrowed, some of the friendliness ebbing. Go ahead, he said. There are preliminary forensics results. Yes. But let us start with the two bodies at the sports complex Maya said were your nephews. The blue eyes narrowed even more. I believe we discussed that. Yes, and everything you told me sounded convenient. Did she plant identification on those bodies to mislead me? No. If the dead man at the church was your nephew, where is the other? I don't know. I hope on his way back to Russia, but don't worry. I'll be in touch with the authorities there about him. You may have to wait, though. He deserted the army. They'll want a piece of him first. You mentioned the forensics. Maia was shot with a gun we found on the floor of the sanctuary, a nine-millimeter walther. Rinovich said. "Maya told me it was the ex-CIA woman who shot her. Two of them had a bit of a running gun battle in the nave and bell tower. Yes, that much was obvious. Your nephew was killed by a single shot at close range from a forty five. the one we found with Maya. Yes, she told me he moved between her and Cassandra, Voya, what you're getting from me is hearsay. Wait a day or so and get your answers from my... Will you be here in a few days? Slava Dubrov said you two would disappear when things got interesting. We're not going anywhere, I assure you. There was a bit of a stare down, which, of course, Rinovich lost by looking away. I... I'm sorry about your nephew. He made a bad choice. I mourn his death, but I mourn more that he let himself get caught up in Cassandra Brown's madness. We will give you the details, together, when she is feeling up to it. Rinovich nodded and said, and I will put those details in a report that will never see the light of day. Bukarin raised an eyebrow. Why not? I have had a call from Petrovich, ungrateful bastard. He reminded me of my country's alliance with Russia. Surely you're not surprised. Of course not. It is frustrating. It is like all the other murders. Good police work gets buried because it does not align with government policy. I would think the X C I A component would be useful in propaganda. Do you not think it would have been all over state news by now? No, it means the government. You know what it means. Yes, unfortunately, I do. Did the dead woman tell you who in the government she worked for? She didn't. But if she had, that's something I wouldn't want you to know, Voya. It would be too dangerous for you and your family. Rinovich nodded. He wanted to believe the man was truly concerned. He suspected there was more to it. Voya, I wanted to talk to you about the contents of the woman's apartment, her computer and phone records. What about them? Since the Interior Ministry is disinterested, could we have access to the computer in particular? Which we do you mean? You, my, and me. For that report, you'll have to hide. Us, to help find out who backed Cassandra Brown. What you ask for sometimes goes too far. We wouldn't need to keep the computer. I can have someone here in 24 hours to copy the computer's hard drive. Then you can bury it along with your report. I wouldn't be adverse to feeding you any tidbits we find you might have an interest in. No one need know you cooperated with us devious agents of the West. What do I get in return? Rinovich asked. Our absence from your life and work? Until you need something from me again. Bukharin shrugged and said, It is what it is. Rinovich didn't know if Bukharin answered as a Russian or a spy. No matter. The outcome would be the same. He sighed and said, You indicated you would arrange to have all the Russians' bodies returned to Russia. Yes, I've been working on that. Let me know when you no longer need the bodies for evidence, and I'll have them shipped home. Bury the report, remember? They are all ready whenever you are. Bukharin looked over his shoulder at a sleeping Maia. He motioned Rinovich to the hallway, and they walked a dozen or more paces away. Did you... Were you able to find Irina Pishkatova's family? Bukharin asked. Yes, your contact in the St. Petersburg Polizia was more than helpful. There is an aunt and uncle. Her parents are dead, no siblings. The aunt said... She died a whore, let her be buried as one. Bukharin winced at the harsh words. I will find a decent place in Belgrade for her, Rinovich said. No, she's Russian. I'll take her back with the others, but there's no need for Maia to know that right now. Rinovich remembered the broken body of the woman at the foot of the bell tower and the dead man inside the church. Agreed. Rinovacic said. I would never want to be on the bad side of Madame Bukharina, ever. Chapter 22 The Last Mission The stern-faced Serbian doctor had released Mai two days before and, with a salacious leer, told Alexei to keep her in bed but Mai was never one to laze about, even with an injury. While Alexei made arrangements to ship a lot of dead Russians home and negotiated a resolution for Kolya, now tucked away with Galina in a safe house in Vienna, Mai had overseen the team from the Vienna station who'd come to the house to pack up her mission materials and case notes. Besides, The location and nature of her wound meant she couldn't get comfortable in bed anyway. When an analyst sealed the last box and the team loaded them into their transport, everyone except Mai seemed to have a mission-accomplished demeanor about them. The mission was far from over. Nelson had wanted her to find out who was behind the murders, and she had. He'd wanted her to convince Ateljevich to become a presidential candidate, and he'd announced a few days before, reading a speech prepared by the election consultant the State Department had promised. What Mai didn't know was who in the Yugoslavian government— no, who in Milosevic's inner circle had bankrolled Cassandra Brown. Finding that out would be difficult, but not impossible— not with Nathan Hemstead on his way to work his magic with computers. There was also the matter of how Cassandra knew not only about Mai's transponder, but its frequency. Mai looked around the empty attic. The desk and chairs looked lost in it now. Mai's laptop sat on the desk. She leaned against the desk to get the weight off her hip. The murder's had stopped. For a while. Long enough for Belgrade to relax a bit. Maybe long enough for a moved-up election to happen without bloodshed. But Mai had no doubt Milosevic, especially if he won, would start it all over again when he felt secure. The connection between him and Cassandra Brown awaited somewhere. A phone record an email, a stray computer file, better yet, someone willing to exchange information for a fee or his survival, best still was Nathan's chances of finding something on Cassandra's computer. And then the mission would be over. All the material she'd accumulated here, all her meticulous case notes would be digitized, logged and tucked away, in an archive accessed by Balkan analysts when they needed to. Mai would write an after-action report for Nelson, and there would likely be a debrief for the Secretary of State. Nothing unusual to the end of another successful mission. Nothing at all. Mai looked around the empty office at the aftermath of what might be her last official mission. No, if it were, it would be her last mission, period. No selling her skills to the highest bidder as Cassandra Brown had. If this were the final mission, what came next? Maitland Catherine Fisher, Countess Uxfield, was 42 years old, still in more or less prime physical and mental condition, Skills undiminished, clearances intact, and only one profession on her resume, the only thing she knew. Would she, like a distant relation had, leave that all behind for the person she loved? And she loved him, even if she rarely spoke the words. Would that be enough to content her? No. She couldn't think that way because it had to content her. She tried once to live the life he'd wanted, a life that had lured her into its intricate web when she was barely 16 years old. Being a spy was all she knew how to do. No, she told herself. You have successful businesses. You fly airplanes. Being a spy does not define you but it did, and she'd wanted that. She fucking loved that, and every minute of being on a mission with a clear purpose. To leave that for the intransigence of love. That seemed a cheat. But Alexei was clear about his priorities. The cold op she was knew that was blackmail, but the woman... wife, she also was, wanted her life to include the man she'd known for more than half of it. She would adjust. Good spies did. That adjustment would force her into a domesticity she'd never wanted and at which she would likely fail. She gathered up her laptop, left the gloomy thoughts in the attic, and headed downstairs. At the bottom of the stairs, she turned to the front door when she heard a key in the lock. The door opened and framed. Beautiful, perfect Alexei. He loved her and hadn't stopped when she'd tried so hard so many times to push him away. Here was why she would try a new life. He closed the door and frowned a bit. You're supposed to be resting, he said. I can't get comfortable, and standing is the only way my backside doesn't hurt so much. And no laughing, mister, or I'll be disinterested in sex for a while. Did you find it? No, Alexei said. It's not among the evidence Renovacitch's men collected. Well, bloody hell! My, it's only a gun. Yes, but it's my gun, the only gun I've ever carried and never lost. I want it back. Why? Because it's mine. Don't ask me to be rational about it. I want it back. Sasha took it and the Glock from me. He had the Glock at the church. It has to be in the car he used. I went over that car with Rinovacic this morning, and it wasn't there, nor was it at the nunnery. Did you tell the policeman I'd pay a reward for it, no questions asked? Yes, my, none of them have it. Did you tell them how much I'd pay for it? My, yes. Enough about the Beretta. What would Sasha have done with it? Alexei removed his jacket and settled on the sofa. He patted a cushion and my sat next to him with some reluctance. From what Kolya told me, Alexei said, Sasha was an eager student of Cassandra's. It's... "'Quite likely he disposed of your Beretta. "'That presupposes he knew its significance to me. "'Kolya admitted he may have talked too much about both of us with Sasha "'an attempt to get him away from Cassandra. "'But why dispose of a perfectly good weapon?' "'A psychological ploy to depress you.' "'He raised an eyebrow, as if suggesting Sasha had succeeded. "'I'm not depressed.' I simply want it back. With a sigh, Alexei took the laptop from her. He opened it and turned it on, typing some commands. When he had what he wanted, he turned the screen toward her. Take a look at this. It's the track of your transponder before Cassandra damped the signal. I noticed this that night. The movement of the signal stopped on the Sava Bridge for about a minute. I don't remember that, but I was doped unconscious in the trunk what are you getting at? It's possible Sasha pitched the Beretta in the Sava, and was going to use that knowledge against you at some point. Alexei took her hand and she started to pull it away. He held on and pressed something familiar in her palm. She didn't have to look to know what it was, but she did anyway. A Beretta 92F magazine with her frangible bullets loaded in it. That we did find in the car, Alexei said. Fuck, now I am depressed. I never lost that Beretta. I never gave it up to an adversary. Through everything, I never lost that gun. The only time I almost died on a mission was when I couldn't have it with me. If the Beretta's gone, my. Your strength, your will to live comes from within you, not from the gun, Alexei said. He was perfect and beautiful, and he loved her. But he could also be the biggest patronizing bastard sometimes. It was a comfort, Alexei, maybe a crutch, but it meant something to me. It was a tool, my. Tools can be replaced. She wondered if that would be the case, if any of his woodworking tools went missing from his workshop at home. I know that, she said. It won't be the same without the Beretta. You'll have to adjust. Voya is now sufficiently immune to your charm, and he won't have the Sava drag to recover your Beretta. He enveloped her. There was no other way to describe it. Arms tight around her, lips placing kisses on her face, the reassuring beat of his heart sinking with hers. Everything about his professional life and hers, he'd been steady. Perhaps he dismissed her attachment to the Beretta because he wanted to be the source of her strength and a comfort to her, a role she too often denied him. I'm sorry, he murmured. For what? The Beretta was an outdated collection of metal parts, but it was your outdated collection of metal parts. I know what it meant to you. Not as much as what you mean to me. Oh, you romantic you, he said, laughing. Well, I don't have to clean and oil you regularly. He whispered something outrageously salacious in her ear, and she was tempted. You can't be late picking up Nathan, she said. Of course I can. Alexei, he's a black man coming into a lily-white country. When his arms left her, she was dismayed by how much she missed the feel of him. He shrugged back into his jacket. "'Wait on the packing. Rest,' he said. "'I'll leave the packing, but I'll shower and get dressed and meet you and Nathan at Cassandra's flat. Rest. Did you listen to me when I said the same thing to you recently? Why do you think I'd be any different?' He smiled at her. "'Sometimes I forget. You are the most stubborn woman on this earth. I'll see you at the flat.' He was at the open door, one foot across the threshold, when she called to him. Alexei. Alyosha. He turned back, his smile teasing. I love you, she said, and this is our last mission. I promise. He studied her, a slight frown creasing his brow as he judged the depth of her honesty. He must have liked what he saw, because his smile returned, and he winked at her before he left. Her hip began to throb in protest, but she picked up the magazine from the sofa. It was still warm from having been on Alexei's person. She felt a skim of gun oil on it. Her right hand clenched in muscle memory of the Beretta's grip, parts of it worn to the shape of her hand. Was this Providence's way of telling her to quit the game she loved before it killed her? No, that meant you had to believe in Providence. She believed and always had only in herself. All right, we'll take a little break here, do a little bit of a commercial. And Justice for All is available for pre-order, and you can pre-order it at my Amazon author page, which is amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan, no capitals, P H Y L L I S Duncan, D U N C A N, all smashed together. And it will be out on December the 1st. And here's a little promo. On November 30th, the last day of November, You can get both Welcome to Belgrade, book one, and Dangerous Truths, book two, for free. So you could pre-order And Justice for All for only $3.99, and then on November 30th, get the other two books for free, three full-length novels for $4. I mean, a... Paper, I mean, a hardback today goes for at least twenty-eight, twenty-nine dollars. Some, some of them more than that, which is why I've switched to Kindle. For one, I don't have any room in my house anymore for books, and two, it's a little bit less expensive on Kindle than it is buying a paperback or a hardback. So, that's how you can get an justice for all. There'll be a Christmas special as well from December 21st through Christmas Day, so through December 25th, where you can get all three books for $6, under $6 actually. And so you get the whole trilogy for $6 when normally it would cost you about $34 for all three of them. If you got them in paperback, $12, $13 if you got them for your Kindle. There's the commercial and just a reminder again that there'll be no podcast next Thursday because it's Thanksgiving. And I hope if you're spending time with family that you're restricting the number of people you're spending time with. It's very painful to me to not be with my whole extended family this Thanksgiving. It's just going to be the people in my bubble, as we call it, the people that I have regular interaction with on a daily or weekly basis, and that's my daughters and their kids, and that's it. Small for the way Thanksgivings usually are in my family, but That's the way it has to be, because COVID infections are rising. Today, we hit 250,000 Americans dead. And even though there's a lot of positive news about a vaccine, about two vaccines, as a matter of fact, from two different companies, we're in the midst of the second wave And it seems to be spreading faster this time than it did before. And frankly, I don't want to succumb to it. I think I've said this before. I have asthma. And it would be a death sentence for me to get it. I just want to do whatever I can do to protect myself from it. And I hope that you all do, too. I want the people who've become readers, who've become listeners of this and read my books, I want you to be around because I have a lot more books to write. That's another reason that I can't get COVID. I have a lot more books left in me to write, and I want to be around to do that. I hope your Thanksgiving is good. I hope you can get together with some family. I hope you practice social distancing and wear your masks. And remember, on Small Business Saturday, which is the Saturday after Thanksgiving, most authors, especially independent authors, are small businesses. I'm a small business in my town. I have a business license and everything required because I make some money off the sales of my books. Not a whole honking lot, but it's enough. Well, no, it's not enough. (laughs) I won't say that. But I make a little bit of money on my books. And so I'm a small business. Most every author I know right now is a small business. Even some authors who are traditionally published, because you have to be responsible for all the things involving your authorship, your marketing, etc., So remember authors on Small Business Saturday and buy some of their books. We would love that. It would just, like, make my whole holiday season. It would make my 2020. And that's saying a lot because 2020 has been pretty bad so far. All right. Commercial over. Pontificating about wearing your mask and staying safe over. Let's read another chapter, or maybe two. Depends on how long it'll be. Let's get back into it with chapter 23 of And Justice for All. A little subterfuge goes a long way. Nathan Hempstead had been My Fisher's first recruit. A fellow student at American University, Nathan had a full scholarship based on his academic record, namely in mathematics, game theory, and a new field, computer science. Nathan had chosen American University over MIT because his only family, his mother, ran a modest motel 60 miles from D.C. She had inherited it from her mother, who'd opened it in a time when its vacancy sign read, COLORED ONLY. It had kept Nathan in clothes and books in high school, and she now operated it as a long-term rental for people who couldn't afford regular apartments. His mother had hoped Nathan would get a basketball scholarship, but gave up on that when he achieved no more than 5 feet 9 inches of height. He'd shown no proclivity for football other than tripping over his own cleats. The physics of baseball fascinated him more than playing it, so she emphasized good grades, most often with a lecture, occasionally with a belt. As one of the few blacks in a rural southern high school, he added to his outsider status by forming a chess club, a math club, and was the school's weather prognosticator. However, computer science, in its fledgling state, was his passion. In his junior year at American, he'd garnered the directorate's attention when he'd used the computers the AU Science Department was testing for Tandy and Motorola to hack into the records of the bank holding his mother's mortgage. He stole no money, but had changed the balance to zero, Though a relatively new crime, the authorities found him easily enough, and he didn't help his case when he informed the dean he didn't want his white savior help. The bank pressed no charges, but American rescinded his scholarship without expelling him. His mother couldn't fund his final year at AU, no matter how well her business did, and that's when Nelson had Mai step in. Alone between friends, she'd told him, and once he'd signed the paperwork, she explained the real deal. He would become the directorate's first cyber expert. He would get to hack into whatever he could, but only for the directorate. He could develop software and hardware for the directorate's use and could also develop non-classified versions for his own fiscal benefit. Espionage gave him a large playground to frolic in, and his department had grown from him to a staff under his direction. Aside from an odd propensity to launch into ghetto-speak at inappropriate times and dress like a rapper, he'd fit in perfectly. When The Matrix had come out the year before, he'd declared the character Morpheus was based on him, based only on the fact his hacker name was Sleeper. His once voluminous afro he now wore close-cropped, and he'd vowed to go Michael Jordan and shave his head if his hairline receded another half-inch. Nathan had always saved the interesting jobs for himself. That, and he never turned down an opportunity to travel in my jet, explaining it made him feel like Bill Gates if... Bill was a brother. When he'd stepped from that jet onto the ramp at Belgrade's airport, the border guards had rushed over and hustled him away, likely because dark-skinned people were almost non-existent in the Balkans, or maybe because they thought he was Puff Daddy. Whichever, Alexei and Renovisic, whose authority Alexei wanted to put to use, headed directly to the customs office, before Nathan could rile the guards enough for a body cavity search. The airport fell within Rinovich's jurisdiction, and he was a secretariat commander. Airport security and the border guards respected the uniform and led him and Alexei to where they held the black one. Alexei and Rinovich found themselves in an observation room where they could see into an interrogation room holding Nathan and two burly, crew-cut men with thick necks. They were going through Nathan's luggage, and his electronic gadgetry was of particular interest. Nathan didn't like their heavy-handed approach, and he'd already devolved past ghetto jive into gangsta trash talk. If either of the guards spoke English, Nathan would soon be shivering, naked, in a cell, after a delousing and a head-shaving. Despite the fact that this could get amusing, let's get him out of here, Alexei said. The sooner he works on that hard drive, the sooner my and I are out of your hair. He squared his shoulders and adopted his best tough cop face before he and Alexei entered the customs interrogation room. Nathan shut up at a look from Alexei, and Rinovich took the half-hearted salutes of the border guards. Gentlemen, Rinovich said, Thank you for taking in this piece of shit. He handed one guard a folded piece of paper. An order from the Ministry of Justice, ordering me to take Mr. Nathan Hempstead into my custody. Do you have his passport? Who is that? One guard asked, nodding at Alexei. This is Comrade Colonel Bukharin of the Russian FSB. He and I have been cooperating on Russian mafia crime in Belgrade. He would like to question this trash as well. Alexei flashed his fake credentials, but the two guards weren't interested. They looked at Nathan in his baggy jeans and oversized basketball jersey, which didn't do much to hide his burgeoning paunch, and laughed. Are you sure you two can handle him, Commander? one asked. The four men enjoyed a laugh at Nathan's expense. Nathan looked puzzled, but when a guard pantomimed for him to repack his equipment, he hurried to do so. Once the cases were locked again and his suitcase closed, Alexei freed a pair of black-hinged Russian police handcuffs from his pocket and murmured, Go with me on this, to Nathan in English. Alexei took Nathan by the arm and walked him from customs into the main area of the terminal, Or hardly a person noticed. Yo, Alexei, you gonna explain this? Nathan asked. A little subterfuge to get you past customs so you don't have to bribe them with your next three paychecks. Ask your questions later. My police friend here doesn't speak English, and I don't wish to be rude. Where's my? That meant shut up, Nathan. After stowing Nathan's luggage in the trunk of Rinovich's police car, they all climbed in. Alexei tossed Nathan the handcuff key. I was hoping for a mugshot, Nathan said, freeing himself. You know, for the street cred. You'd last a minute on the streets here, Nathan, Alexei said. He switched to Serbian. voja my friend here only speaks English. I'm going to switch to that for a while. Rinovich smiled at him. A conspiratorial smile. Maybe more like... A smug smile. In excellent English, Rinovich said, Of course, Alexei, not a problem. You speak English. Still smiling, Rinovich blew his horn and pulled out into traffic. Wasn't that in the file you had on me? No. And an analyst somewhere would hear about that personally, from Alexei. Oh! The smile threatened to split Rinovich's face. An omission, I am sure, you will correct. Well, shite, as Mai would say. Alexei tried to recall if he and Mai had had any significant exchanges in English in front of Rinovich. He hoped they had been few. Why didn't you simply speak English with us? Alexei asked. You spoke Serbian to me. How was I to know you spoke English? You're awfully pleased to have put something over on us, aren't you? Very much so. Alexei shook his head and turned to Nathan. How was the flight? Flights. We had to stop, like, a hundred times for fuel. Where's Mai? Far from a hundred, and Mai's waiting for us with the computer you're going to examine. What was that shit back at the airport? I I thought I only got harassed for being black while in the U.S.? I understood mafia. We let them think I'm Russian FSB, taking you into custody because you work for the Russian mafia. Okay. What am I looking for in this computer? The usual? Bank records? Email encrypted files? Obviously a bit more than password protected, because either you or my could have broken that. The computer belonged to an ex-CIA agent, a rogue. It might be CIA encryption locked. That's why we need you. Yeah? Yeah? Easy peasy then, unless the CIA has started doing this new thing, new for them at least, I've been using it for years, an encrypted data file hides in something innocuous like spam or a graphic. Easy way to pass stuff along and keep it hidden. Only the person with the key can see the file. If you don't have the key, bye bye Are you saying you can't? Oh, please. If I didn't bring a program with me to break it, I'll write one, or... I'll tap my main man at the CIA for the key. Can we stop and get something to eat? Your galley wasn't stocked to its usual standards. Chapter 24 Do Cyberhounds Dream of Electric Trails? Mai stood in the small living room of what had been Cassandra Brown's Belgrade flat and looked out the picture window. Mai could see why Cassandra had picked this place. The view of the old city was charming. If not for the modern cars, you could feel as if you were back in time, a simpler time before spies and intrigue. Well, that was a reach. Spies and intrigue were as much a part of Balkan history as its being the powder keg of Europe. She listened to Alexei and Rinovich as they spoke in soft tones, in English no less, as they went over Cassandra's phone logs, marking numbers to have directorate analysts examine deeper. Nathan Hempstead worked diligently, earphones from a flat rectangular object in his ears. Smaller and more compact than a Walkman, she was curious what it was. She also knew once Nathan was in the zone... He hated being interrupted. Nathan bebopped to whatever he was listening to on the device. To an untrained eye, the haphazard arrangement of his equipment, the tangle of wires and cords, the stack of depleted styrofoam coffee cups might seem unprofessional, but it was how he worked best. "'It's called an iPod,' he said, not looking up. "'What?' He picked up the device. "'This.' Not available to the public until October next year. Steve gave me a prototype to test. Steve? Oh, you mean jobs. Yeah, who else? And no, you can't have it, but I'll see if he has another one lying around. Yes, you can look at it. She walked to the tiny dining table where he'd set up shop. When she reached for the iPod, she hissed as her gluteal muscles protested being stretched. What's up with you? Nathan asked, eyes never leaving the various monitors set up around him. A stitch in my side. Stitch like you run too long or like sutures? It's nothing. Right. Alexei's walking around like his insides might spill out if he takes a wrong step, and you're so pale, I'm thinking we're close enough to the Carpathians. I should have brought Buffy Summers along. I know exactly why you'd bring Buffy the Vampire Slayer with you, and it wouldn't be for staking the undead. Listen to you with the pop culture reference, Nathan said, grinning. Well, Natalia doesn't miss that show. So? What is it? I'm fine. Sure, don't confide in a friend and co-worker. It's because I'm black, isn't it? Nathan, you're black all these years and you never told me. It's kind of racist to say you never noticed I was black. So? I got whacked by a nine-millimeter bullet, which entered my left gluteal muscle and wandered around a bit before it exited. Bled like a fucker, hurts like a bitch. His grin widened, and he looked up at her. Fisher got popped in the ass. You will not characterize it that way to anyone back at HQ. Am I clear? Absolutely. I found a little something here that's got me puzzled. What? The email folders are locked up tight. I'll be dazed decrypting them, but I will decrypt them. He lowered his voice. It might be better if I could take this back to my lab. Technically, it's evidence, and we'll go to the Belgrade please. I see. Well, I'll work something out. So all those lock folders, and there's one. Only one unencrypted email. However, there's code that makes it look like it's encrypted like all the others. I suspect the key would work on it, but here's the thing. I can open it. No key needed. The person who used this computer, would he or she miss something like that? My new Cassandra believed in tech, but much like my, she wanted it to be trouble-free and reliable. Cassandra would consider the nuts and bolts of it beneath her. Yes, she might have. What would be the purpose of making an unencrypted email look like an encrypted one? This is my guess right now. Whoever sent it wanted her to think it was encrypted like all their other communications. But the sender wanted it to be found by someone who knew the difference. That's odd. You said that's the only email like that. Yeah. There's a couple hundred emails on here. Maybe ten or twelve from the same sender. Oh, and the sender? CIA. How? I can tell. Let me see it. Nathan found the email and clicked on it. Lines of code appeared, but line by line, they disappeared. See, if I'd use the key, that's what would happen, Nathan said. When that finished, a Madrid address appeared. Wait for it, Nathan murmured. The letters and words of the address also disappeared until only the house number remained. Bloody hell, Mai said, straightening. She ignored the fresh pain that caused. Alexei, I need you to look at something. Only you. With what seemed like impossible swiftness for a man who'd lost so much blood not long before, Alexei was at her side. Together they studied the number on the computer screen. The secret frequency of her implanted transponder. On the sidewalk in front of the apartment building, Mai, Alexei, and Rinovich stood in a triangle. Policemen carted everything from Cassandra's flat to their vans, including the laptop. Nathan Hemstead stowed his equipment in the boot of Mai's car. The buildings, storefronts, and vehicles around them were plastered with campaign posters for the hastily called election, but these weren't the usual fare. Even though Milosevic's deceptively benevolent, unsmiling visage looked down on them, the campaign slogans read, He is finished. Mai let herself smile at having had a small hand in that. Not such a meager accomplishment for a final mission. Well, comrades from the FSB, Rinovacic said, smiling, it has been interesting. We always endeavor to make the local authorities' lives interesting, I said. Consider this a success, then. Rinovich sobered and added, My family? Let's keep them in the safe house for a while longer, Voya, Alexei said. Until we're certain you'll get no fallout from any of this. I'm reasonably sure anyone associated with Cassandra Brown has been neutralized, but She had to have had an informer among the police, and certainly a connection to the secret police. Best to be safe a while longer. Yes, a wise precaution, but I miss them. Why don't you take a holiday? Mai said. The villa where they're staying is quite nice, and the guards understand privacy. I will take that under consideration. So, are you finished here? That eager to be rid of us. Do not take this the wrong way, but yes. I think Belgrade has had enough of extra shootings. If it hasn't, I have. But we got the bad guys. What every cop wants. But yes, we'll be leaving tomorrow. And then what, she wondered. We will be quiet, unobtrusive citizens until we leave, Alexei said. He extended a hand to Rinovich. Well, comrade commander, the FSB thanks you for your assistance in this matter. That made Rinovich laugh, and the two men shook hands. Rinovich gave Mai a salute and walked toward his men. He's a remarkable policeman, Mai said. I like him. Compliment you rarely give the police, said Alexei. He's a good one, deserving of a compliment. They turned to the car when they heard the trunk close. Nathan rubbed his hands together. So what's next? Some clubbing, you know, nightlife? He asked. No, you get to go to the airport and head back so you can start work on that copied hard drive. Maya replied. What copied hard drive? Nathan said, doing a little dance. I swapped it and under the cop's nose, too. This brother know his shit. We have the original hard drive. Yes, we do. I love you. Why, sister, this is sudden, but you gotta drop the Russian dude. I ain't into sharing. Get in the car, Alexei said, before I leave you for the secret police. The most you're getting is a first-class ride back to the States, but good work. Laughing, Nathan got into the back, and Mai eased her way into the passenger seat as Alexei got behind the wheel. As the buildings of Belgrade slipped past the windows, the finality of the mission closed in. No, she wasn't going to think about that now. She'd face that later. The Glock and its holster at the small of her back didn't feel right. It wouldn't. It wasn't the Beretta. And that made her miss it again. So, said Nathan... That email thing really pissed you guys off. Yes, it did, and you're not clear to know why. That's bullshit. My clearance is the same as yours. Drop it, Nathan. What we'll put you in a bitchy mood all of a sudden? Well, no, that's par for the course. Nathan, Alexei said, the implications of that email are serious and we're not discussing it, understand? Alexei had used his I-expect-to-be-obeyed tone. Nathan slouched in the back seat and began to hum some tune. To ease her aching hip, Mai shifted, her heel striking something protruding from beneath her seat. Bloody hell, Alexei, stop the car! What is it? There's something under my seat! Oh, Jesus, is it a bomb? Nathan asked. It's not a bomb, Alexei said, smiling at Mai it's a present for you a present what kind of present open it and see she had to pinch her lips shut to keep from crying out when she bent over to pull the box under her lap square about a foot on each side it had some heft to it thick gold paper formed a sleeve around the box and Mai slipped it free embossed on the wooden box was a symbol a circle with three arrows The letters P. Beretta formed an arc inside the circle. What is this? Open it. She undid the latch and lifted the lid. Nestled in velvet-lined depressions were a Beretta handgun, two magazines, and a hand-tool leather holster, wet-stretched to fit the gun perfectly. The new Beretta 9000, not yet available in the United States, but purchased by Your loving husband, after a brief phone call to the Beretta factory in Italy, Alexei said. The 9000 is Beretta's offering in the polymer line. Ergonomic grips, double action only. I haven't had a chance to test fire it, but it balances nicely in the hand. Nine millimeter, ten round magazine. God, you sound like a salesman. Nathan leaned forward to peer over her shoulder. Way cool, he said. If this were her last mission, why would she need a gun, even though she still had the Glock? Because you, Egypt, she told herself, he wanted you to have it. He wanted to give it to you. It was smaller than her 92F, and it had the sheen of newness. A slight smell of gunpowder met her nose. Tess fired at the factory. The ergonomic grips were a new feature for the old-world Beretta Company. She hefted the gun, and it slipped into her hand as if it belonged there, had been there for years. She found herself incapable of speech. Was there nothing this man wouldn't do for her? Every slight and criticism she'd given him came to mind, and she hated herself for each of them. Yesterday he chided her about her reaction to the loss of the 92F. But he must have made the call to Beretta not long after that conversation. And to have it here in less than a day? That would have cost him. He'd left retirement, left a safe job, to be with her, and had almost gotten himself killed. It was time she started showing her appreciation. Alexei, she said, but her throat closed with emotion. When we get home, he said. We'll take it to the firing range and break it in. It's quite the beauty. When I saw it, I was almost tempted to order one for myself. Husband and wife guns, Nathan said. More cool. Thank you, Mai said, unsure why this simple gesture meant so much to her. She took Alexei's right hand off the steering wheel, interlaced her fingers with his, and didn't let go. And there we are, a few more chapters from the end of part one of And Justice For All. We really are reaching the end of this book, I promise. This week and a couple more weeks after that, and then you're going to start hearing from a new release, one that's coming out on Valentine's Day. And as I'm using in marketing, it's a love story but not the one you expect. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, again, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Stay safe, wear your masks, and if you have to go outside, remember, keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.